Well, good morning. If you have a Bible, uh, I would invite you to open to Mark chapter 15. We'll be reading uh, from verses 21 to 32. Please, if you would, stand for the reading of the word and join me as I, I pray for us. Gracious Lord, you have given us this word Be pleased to grant that even as seed in the ground and rain that waters it bears fruit in keeping with your purpose, that this word would reach into the depths of who we are, that it too might fulfill its purpose in our lives. For we pray in Christ's name, amen. And they compelled a passerby Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not taste it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. It was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, saying, Ah, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. And so also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He can't save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Let me take your seats. Shame. It can be as subtle as a moment's inward glimpse that says, I'm flawed, to a haunting feeling that there is something deeply wrong with me. As a pastor, many times I have been with men and women as they wept and talked about the things that brought shame in their lives, and how it had bound them uh, to those past actions. There's true shame. It's the shame that flows from doing what's wrong. It's not just guilt. It's a very powerful feeling, shame. And then there's false shame, which is ours because we live in a broken world. Shame has many, many voices. Everyone has a story of shame. A child is humiliated by a group of children on the playground, pointing at their ears. Yes, elephant ears, they say, and they laugh at him. Many an adult cannot forget the word of a parent. You are a failure. You will never amount to anything. You're just like your brother. Shame is a universal experience. 
wealth, success, and fame are no protection from it. Reese Witherspoon is one of the most successful actresses in the world, and she had this to say about herself. I don't watch any movie that I'm in. It's horrifying. I will just focus on something stupid. I hate my laugh. I think I have the strangest smile in the whole world. She goes on to say, in very dark moments, moments of pure self-loafing, I do not type my name into Google. Anything you read there is, nothing you read there is positive. You always go straight to where they say something nasty about you. You're fat, you're ugly, you're tired, you're worthless, you don't have a career anymore. And it's just the affirmation of every horrible feeling you've had about yourself. Shame is deeply seated in us. Diana Schlepper uh, put up a a website called Body Confessions, inviting people anonymously to talk about how they felt about their body. There were thousands of posts within a few uh, days' uh, time, most of them from women. And here's just a sample of them. I hate everything about my body and often feel guilty because I should be thankful that I even have a healthy body. I have no missing limbs, no diseases, no actual faults. I'm tired and exhausted of hating my blessed body. Sometimes when I see a woman fatter than me, I'm glad she's making me look better. I constantly compare myself to other women, weight, skin, hair, clothes, More often than not, I find myself lacking in most areas. In the last post, I continually base my worth on what other people look like. I don't know how to feel comfortable in my own skin. But it's not just women today who feel body shame. Many, many men do today as well. Our acts of sin... They bring us not just guilt, but the shame of failure. Tim Chester uh, writes about some of the things men have said to him as they've confessed their use of pornography. It made me to want to hide from God. It makes me doubt my salvation. And then depression comes, and with the depression comes the temptation to sin again. I feel awful about myself. I don't feel worthy to serve God. I don't believe I can break this habit. I feel dirty and unable to approach God after looking at it. So often I feel unable to come to him in repentance, even though I know my sin is already dealt with. I couldn't talk with God about my problems. My picture of him was that he would accept me if and when I could scrub up enough. Shame cuts us off not just from God, but from other people. A nationally known pastor, speaker, author was doing a conference in Texas just a few miles from where he grew up. And during a break in the conference, he decided he would hop in his car and drive 20 minutes to the town in which he uh, grew up and look at the houses and just uh, remember what it was like back then. 
As he drove into town, he passed a field where he had gotten into a fistfight with a kid named Sean. It wasn't a fair fight. I did some shady, dark things in that fight and humiliated him in front of a large crowd of people. Then I drove past my first house, and I thought of all the wicked things that I'd done in that house. I passed my friend's house where there was once a party, and I did some of the most shameful, horrific things I've ever done. And afterward, driving back to the conference, I was overwhelmed with guilt, with shame, at the wickedness I had done in that city prior to knowing Jesus Christ. I could hear the whispers in my heart. You call yourself a man of God. You're going to go stand in front of those guys and tell them what it means to be a man of God after all you've done. These messages add up, and they cut to the core of our sense of dignity. They undermine any self-confidence we might have. And though people tell us that we have value because we're made in the image of God, it simply has no weight in our lives. We believe in the depths of our beings, we are exceptions. That's a truth for somebody else, but not for me. Mark recounts the crucifixion of Jesus And the main thing he emphasizes here is that Jesus was shamed. He was deliberately humiliated. Most of the space in this account recounts how it is that Jesus was mocked, insulted, attacked with words as he hung on the cross. Mark wants us to see that Jesus is shamed so that we might be free of our shame. Both our actual shame for the wicked things we've done and the false shame we have because we live in a fallen world. Jesus is shamed so that we might have our dignity and worth restored. Now, all the gospel writers write about the act of crucifixion with great brevity. They don't sensationalize it. They don't play on our emotions. Crucifixion in some form or another had been practiced centuries prior to the Romans making use of it. The Assyrians uh, would crucify their enemies on the battlefield, uh, uh, running uh, them through the back, uh, through the chest, impaling uh, them through the pelvis. The Phoenicians were the first to add a cross piece uh, to which a person could be nailed. And the Greeks and the Romans adopted it from them. But the Romans had a keen sense of public theater. They knew how to use public ritual to honor as well as to shame an individual. The act of crucifixion is the ultimate way to dishonor someone. Jesus' opponents are intent on destroying him, not just killing him. They want to remove uh, in the public mind all the honor and status he had enjoyed. They want to totally discredit him in the eyes of the public. 
They want to destroy his standing before other people. And to do this, they engage in what anthropologists call a status degradation ritual. It's a process of publicly recasting, relabeling, humiliating, and thus recategorizing a person as a social deviant. They mock and denounce a person's former identity in such a way as to destroy it totally. Many of you here will remember one of the most, well, striking examples of this in our lifetimes. It happened 20 years ago. Uh, It comes from the Iraq War. It was the image of Saddam Hussein after he was captured being pulled out of a hole. His hair is off to one side. He looks dazed and disoriented, anything but a man in control. His clothes were clean, uh, but he wasn't in a uniform. He was stripped of his power. A physician is probing in his mouth. Here's the man who had terrorized millions, launched uh, wars on neighboring nations, who had used uh, chemical weapons on his own people, who was a Middle East strongman who defied the world, and now he appeared as weak and helpless. His former image was a man uh, with a gun in his hands or commanding troops, and that was being completely undermined. And you can be sure that that was, in fact, the intent of releasing this image. The coalition forces wanted the Iraqi people to know that Saddam Hussein was no longer a threat to them. Mark tells us of the process of the degrading of Jesus. It begins in the house of the high priest. Jesus is blindfolded. He's struck from behind and mocked as a prophet. He had been honored as a prophet in his life. He's insulted reviled, spat upon, struck with fists. This humiliation takes place in public. It's in a courtyard. Peter and the others watch him. He is, and they are, powerless to stop it. He seems utterly without authority or power. And then Pilate offers to release him. The crowd asks for Barabbas the insurrectionist and murderer. His name in Aramaic means son of the father. And for the Christian, there's a deep irony here because Jesus, the true son of God, the father and Barabbas, the criminal, have now switched places. As Jesus is handed over to the soldiers, he's reduced to the level of utter contempt. He's stripped crowned with thorns, a scepter of reeds in his right hand, and he is mocked as the king of the Judeans. It's a degradation not only of Jesus, but it's a public insult to the Judean crowd and its rulers. But the ultimate humiliation is hanging naked on a cross. The nakedness enhances the shame. It's not just a way to kill a person. It's a way to utterly shame and degrade them. It's done on a heavily traveled road, providing the setting for the final public derision. 
Jesus loses all status. He's now a non-person, and the soldiers gamble for his clothes. Mark tells us three groups come to mock him. Those who pass by coming and going in uh, to the city for the Feast of Passover. The chief priests and the teachers of the law. And the two men crucified beside him also insult him. And every insult has an ironic twist about it. There's an irony every, in every word that's uttered to Jesus here. Jesus has above his head a sign. It's wooden. It's coated in chalk and lettered in pen. It is, does not say a royal pretender. No, it says king of the Jews. This scene is Jesus' coronation. His throne is a cross. His courtiers are two robbers. And he holds audience with his enemies who kill him. The word that's translated in verse 29, either derided or hurled insults, is actually the word ordinarily used, almost exclusively used, to speak evil of God. It's to blaspheme. And what Mark is doing here is he's inviting the reader to respond to what you're reading and you're hearing this morning. Jesus who claims to be God or those insulting him? Who is the blasphemer? Is it Jesus who has claimed to be God or is it those who are insulting the one who claims to be God? And Mark is saying something extraordinary uh, here. It may seem subtle, but it's not. Mark is saying God is like this. God is willing to endure the insults and hostility of human beings. He's willing to suffer. And Christians see irony here. For the chief priests and scribes are guilty of the very thing that they condemn Jesus for. He saved others. He can't save himself, they cry. This taunt assumes that the salvation of yourself is the greatest possible good that it would be the surest vindication that he is Messiah, it would be his ability to save himself. Jesus' mission is not one, though, of self-help or self-fulfillment. He will be a ransom for others. That's what his struggle in Gethsemane was about. It was affirming and fulfilling his calling. At every level, almost every word, shame is heaped up on Jesus. Part of the meaning of this uh, text is conveyed in its connections with other parts of Scripture. And this text connects with the 22nd Psalm. It's obvious we didn't read these next lines, but Jesus cries out from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's a direct quote from the Psalm. But in verse 24, there's an allusion when it says, Dividing up his garments. That's verse 18 of that psalm. What this is doing, what Mark is telling us here, what God so arranged is that Jesus is being identified with the suffering righteous man of Psalm 22. Jesus' shameful death fulfills the prototype of what a suffering righteous man experiences. 
You see, Jesus is our substitute. He's righteous. He didn't do anything to deserve this. He undergoes the shaming and humiliation and dehumanizing in our place. Jesus was shamed for us so that we might have our dignity restored. Jesus was shamed for us so that we might have our worth back. Jesus bore our shame. He is stripped naked twice, flogged and mocked. Our shame as a race was seen in our nakedness. There's a mystery about shame and our experience of it, and that mystery goes all the way back to the beginning of human history. In the Garden of Eden, in paradise, where Adam and Eve decided that God was not their generous creator, but their enemy. They rebelled against him, and they became aware of their nakedness. They covered themselves with fig leaves. They were covering their shame. You see, we too fashion fig leaves. We hide our true selves from other people because we're sure they will reject us if they know us. We won't let people see our weaknesses. And so we manage our lives to show them only our strengths, the things we're competent in. We hide our fear by appearing to be strong. We cloak our hate with apparent love, but in truth, it's just a mask for indifference. We all fashion fig leaves. Jesus bore our shame. So we don't need to hide from God or each other. We don't need to fashion fig leaves anymore. We can know we are accepted and embraced, even delighted in because of what Jesus has done. We are loved. And we can, out of that love, face the truth about the things in our lives that are still needing to be changed and redeemed. We can name out loud that evil that still exists in us, the deepest source of our shame. And in the naming of it, we find that evil has lost some of its power. That's why we take time to confess our sins when we're together. And we are free to love each other while remaining weak as people who long for greater and fuller redemption. And we can experience real and deep intimacy with others because our security doesn't rest on what others think of us, but on what he thinks of us. And he has conferred on us a dignity that cannot be taken from us. He calls us his own. A well-known author pastor, at one time the leader of a well-known Christian organization, recounts this story, and I want to close with it. Many years ago, he writes, my wife and I were in an argument, and I was becoming increasingly agitated. In my fury, I yelled at her 
and aimed my fist at a section of the dining room wall. Unfortunately, this time my hand did not land between the studs as it usually had. Instead, I broke a knuckle. A deathly silence settled in the room. And while I came from a family in which nothing was done until someone yelled, Barb came from a family in which yelling brought things to a standstill. She was not going to speak to me for weeks. I writhed in physical pain. I writhed in emotional pain. I was a utter failure as a husband. I tried awkwardly with one hand to sweep up the bits of sheetrock that were on the floor, and I felt a hand on my arm, and I turned around, and it was Barb. She said something apologetic, and I said something apologetic, and then she embraced me for a long time. She had every right to condemn my behavior and distance herself from me. Surely that would have taught me a lesson, but instead she embraced me, the angry sinner. And rather than teaching me a lesson, she helped heal me. On this week, on Good Friday, we are remembering and celebrating something very, very similar, but it's on a cosmic scale. Jesus so identifies with the immoral. He spent so much time with the people who everyone deemed to be irreligious that the good people of the day mocked him as a sinner. On Good Friday, Jesus uh, continued the story. He didn't distance himself so much from sin as he embraced it in himself. And by his embrace, he made redemption possible. What will you do with Jesus? Will you scoff at him and dismiss him? Can you see what he has done? Will you turn to him in your shame? Will you humble yourself? and entrust yourself to him. If you do, he will embrace you, and you will begin to know healing. Let's pray. Most gracious God, enable us to receive what has happened that Mark has told us about this morning. Speak to us, O Lord. Move us. Move us out of our unbelief, out of our stubbornness, into the joy of knowing that we're embraced and loved, that you cherish and value us. Free us from our hiding, our fig leaves, Give us joy. Give us fresh joy, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.